0: It's a great pleasure, um, ladies and gentlemen, to be here to um, introduce the speaker at what is one of our most prestigious lectures in this college. Um, we have an annual lecture from the European Studies Center, which is enormously active anyway. It's, it's, it's one of the most, I, well, all our set centers are active, but the European <laughs> Studies Center um, is particularly active, um, shall we say. It's, it, it always You always have extremely good seminars and, and very good speakers. And I know that tonight is going to be yet another high point in what you do. And I'm very, very pleased to, to be able to introduce Professor Offa. Um, he will be taking questions at the end. And what you need to do is attract the attention of the student over there who's got a microphone. And if you could wait till you get the microphone and, and if you could introduce yourself, that I think would be nice. And so we'll, we'll end up the lecture with, with some questions. Um, Professor Offer is a political scientist and sociologist. He held the chair of, of, uh, as professor of political science at Humboldt University in Berlin, um, earned his degree at the University of Frankfurt, and then his habilitation at the University of Konstanz. He is now, um, well, he says he's retired, but it doesn't sound much like a retirement to me at all. Um, he is now teaching on a part-time basis at the Hurti School of Governance, um, a school of public policy, where he holds a chair of political sociology. He has held professorships in the course of his long and distinguished career at the universities of Bielefeld and Bremen. And he has held research visiting and professorships and taught courses um, quite literally around the world, Um, United States, Canada, Australia, Russia, Hungary, Poland, Austria, Italy, Netherlands, and a very, very long list of places where he has contributed his knowledge and his scholarship. His fields of research include democratic theory, transition studies. European Union Integration, and Welfare State and Labor Market Studies. He has a long list of publications, which if I were to read them all out, um, would not leave enough time for him to lecture. But his most recent work um, includes a book, um, Modernity in the State, East and West, um, Institutional Design in Post-Communist Societies. And most recently, in 2006, a book with the marvelous title, Reflections on America, Tocqueville, Weber, and Adorno in the United States. Um, A very interesting trio indeed. He is talking tonight on Returning to Europe, Divides and Challenges in in the Enlarged European Union. And like you all, I'm very much looking forward to it. Please join me in welcoming Professor Arthur.
1: So thank you very much for your kind words of introduction. And thank you for inviting me. Uh, to this uh, lecture, which I had heard before. I'm very honored to be invited as a speaker. What I want to do is uh, to look at the present state of the European Union and in particular three of its construction sites that are of particular interest and uh, i will spend um, uneven amounts of time on these three construction sites the first is um, the question the divide the conflict the tension the cleavage between member states and the union the relationship Um, the second uh, very briefly i just mentioned this because it is Uh, under discussion everywhere in Europe, is the relationship between five of the six original member states on the one hand, and uh, what is commonly used under the acronym PIGS, that is um, the five states under current fiscal financial precariousness, Portugal, Ireland, Italy, Greece and Spain, Pigs. And thirdly, and uh, most extensively, I'm going to talk about another third divide in Europe, and that is the divide that is marked by the former Iron Curtain, that is the divides, tensions, challenges, conflicts, that uh, exists between the EU 15, or the old member states, and the EU 10, that is the new member states uh, of a Post-socialist history, leaving out the one and a half Mediterranean islands that make up the um, 27. Then, uh, at the moment, so um, the the uh, the first question that is uh, being asked and that I want to briefly discuss is the question. Uh, of um, member states and uh, the EU, the limitations of democratic accountability at the European level, and its consequences for democracy at the national level. The problem is not primarily that the EU must become democratic which has happened to an extent through uh, uh, the Lisbon Treaty. It is that member states' politics must remain democratic and not the democratic process at the member state level should not be preempted and distorted by European decision-making. Moreover, major institutional actors at the EU, as many Analysts have observed, Fritz Schaaf being one of the most prominent major institutional actors at the EU level, namely the European Central Bank, the European Court of Justice and the Commission when it operates as a rule enforcement agency, have a direct impact upon the citizens of member states and therefore must be subjected to some kind of institutionalized legitimacy test. The intensity of institutional interdependence between the national and the European levels of governments is bound to thwart attempts to isolate the two levels and to protect the national political system from the effects of the democratic deficiencies at the European level. That there is, in fact, reason for concern that if the shift of political power from the democratically legitimized national governments to the EU is not accompanied by some kind of compensation through additional channels of supranational legitimation, democracy within nation-states will be perceived as decaying. Uh, Democracy, I'm not going to discuss democracy, except for uh, for one distinction that I found useful and I hope you won't find too too primitive or simplistic. Um, Democracy um, is uh, accountability, and accountability applies to two questions. One is the question uh, how and to what extent rulers are effectively prevented from doing the wrong thing. Uh, that is uh, effective punishment or sanctioning capacity uh, of uh, the ruled over the rulers. Um, The second is, rulers are mandated and able to do the right thing, and how can they be mandated? Not violating uh, the the limits of rule, but uh, using their power uh, for uh, purposes that are uh, uh, commonly uh, approved. A system of rule in which rulers are held perfectly accountable by the rules yet cannot accomplish anything, is as much a caricature of democracy uh, or an impoverished version as would be a system of rule which is highly effective in shaping conditions and developments without being accountable to the ruled. So both things must come together. Moreover, the two aspects of democratic rule hang together, as it appears unlikely that the ruled will have good reasons to support a set of rulers whose capacity for significant policy-making, as opposed to the simple execution of market imperatives, and problem solving has evidently evaporated. The ruled are powerless when the institutional resources to control rulers are absent. But the rulers themselves can also be powerless and thus do not qualify it by the second criterion of what a democracy is when they find themselves incapable of dealing effectively with problems of providing public goods or of protecting EU societies from what could be called public bads. When this is the case, the system of rule loses its policymaking capacity and democratically constituted political power is idled. In modern capitalist democracies, the major cause of the incapacitation of rulers is of an economic uh, nature. Markets hold would-be policymakers in a bind. As soon as they adopt an activist approach to the solution of social problems, and through policy making, they will be punished by adverse reactions of economic actors such as investors and employers, on whose activities policymakers depend as their tax base as well as their political uh, as well as their political support. The present configuration of the Europolity and its Uh, largely negative integration um, is clearly such that it enables economic actors to make extensive use of this mechanism of punishment and thus to disable the making of public policies. So so, uh, the question that citizens have of member states uh, looking at the European Union is what can the European Union at all do in terms of uh, desirable collective outcomes. The uh, governing or policy-making or governance uh, 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 capacity is at issue. The two standards justifications uh, that Europe offers its member states and citizens are the backward-looking justification that member states have, after all, voluntarily given up some of their sovereignty at the point of joining the Union, and second, the forward-looking of functionalist justification in terms of output legitimacy, as Fritz Schaff again has called it, that is claimed on the grounds that general observance of these constraints and the universal compliance with European regulations will eventually, hopefully, turn out for the better in terms of the, uh, the prosperity um, and the assurance of even burden-sharing and the security from negative externalities, and so on. Um, Well, I think uh, uh, the current issues uh, that uh, European policymakers uh, face um, make these backward-looking and forward-looking justifications um, insufficient um the question is what can actually be accomplished at the european level and uh, we look at uh, areas in which uh, many citizens of european member states as well as political elites express a strong hopes strong demands for joint action at the european level which however uh, does not uh, come forth. Uh, foreign policy is one uh, example. Uh, European foreign policy, uh, look at the recent events in the context of the MENA, Middle East, and North Africa uh, revolution. What Europe, in spite of its having a foreign minister now, uh, is able to say to this uh, and even to do with its own mean on this is evidently very limited. The same applies uh, for uh, the entire last year, the discussion of a common fiscal and economic policy or an economic um, policy uh, for uh, Europe, which would then uh, help to prevent the repetition of the type of crisis that we have uh, been through over uh, the past two and a half years. Uh, Another uh, issue area where Europe has failed to generate uh, policies that are uh, supported or uh, negotiated among uh, all member states and find the support is the entire very urgent uh, policy area of migration and asylum. Again, uh, we have uh, 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 a lot of conflicts here and an ongoing blockade of coordinated, concerted, harmonized European policies. After the uh, embarrassing experience of the Lisbon agenda of the year 2000, um, there is still the need for a coordinated European social and labour market policy, which supposedly works through means um, of the method of coordination. Uh, at best, we can speak of a uh, uh, stagnation of these policy areas, and the uh, European initiatives and European uh, coordinating. Uh, Um, activities are very limited uh, indeed. Uh, The the same applies to the social uh, inclusion agenda, very high up the um, agenda, Uh, rhetorically, nominally, but um, uh, mostly the member states are left alone with uh, Uh, addressing the growing problem of uh, social exclusion so the uh, uh, the question is uh, what can be accomplished at the European level and how can uh, the governing capacity uh, of the European Union uh, be increased and if we uh, ask for the reasons for the disappointing evidence that there is very little that can be done at the European level. We often encounter the uh, argument, well, member states follow their own interests, their particularist, selfish uh, interests, rather than joining the uh, uh, the common cause of uh, uh, European affairs. And I want to question that answer, Uh, and I think it is of great, uh, I always felt that it is of great um, also theoretical uh, significance for social scientists, that uh, you find how little you can actually uh, explain in terms of interests, because interests are themselves not self-evident. Uh, It is not that one should not follow interests. Why not? I mean, it is normally considered to be selfish to follow your interests. It is that you cannot because it is highly ambiguous what your interests are. Let me develop this briefly uh, uh, with an example. Suppose you are Germany and suppose the issue are euro bonds. And uh, there are now uh, four uh, interest positions. Uh, you can take on this um, uh, issue, pro- or uh, con-euro bonds. And um, it turns out that it is not clear what the priority should be from a purely interest-oriented point of view. Uh, There is amazingly little guidance from considerations of interest. Let's uh, uh, go through the case. Uh, from a short-term and political perspective, you can, uh, as a German government, uh, say, well, let's use the opportunity to cater to uh, uh, the res- resentments that prevail against the uh, PEGs, uh, teach them uh, a lesson, enforce discipline, and uh, also create uh, among your national constituency the feeling of superiority of of some kind, and that has been pursued uh, that road. But you could also say a long-term political uh, perspective, and that would say use the opportunity to build EU economic and fiscal policy capacity uh, in order to prevent the repetition of a crisis such as the one we just went through that would then lead to a very uh, open-minded willingness to embrace the idea of euro uh, 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 bonds. You could also uh, take a long-term economic perspective by saying, um, uh, make sure that uh, uh, the ability to pay uh, is preserved or, for that matter, restored on the part of future customers of German exports. And that would also uh, lead to a very open-minded attitude towards uh, such a proposal of highly coordinated. Um, and and then you could uh, take a, the force, uh, a short-term economic perspective, namely put a, a high priority on austerity, consolidate the budget, um, uh, um, avoid uh, uh, being a a net contributor to European causes, uh, and so on. The problem is that all of these sound somehow related to interests, but they cannot be aggregated and weighted. Um, There is no metric by which these contradictory interests and or interpretations of interests uh, uh, add up, and and therefore we still don't know uh, what is the best thing to do in the name of national interests. So, uh, and I suppose that in many issues, uh, in, and in many countries, this can be replicated. This uh, exercise interests, in spite of all the respect we uh, have learned to uh, develop for for a realist uh, approaches uh, to national as well as international policy. Interests do not tell you very much what you uh, must do. That is, interests are very um, ambiguous. You don't know what your uh, interests are. What you do know is what uh, the shifting attitudes uh, in the mass uh, constituency uh, are uh, we have as far as trust in europe is concerned and trust in european policy making in many countries a development that in german uh, germany looks uh, the following way in the year 2002 the question um, do you trust the european union very simple survey question was uh, answered in the positive by 49% of the respondents and in the negative by 40%. Today, January um, 2011, the figures are that only 25% uh, uh, express trust in the European Union and its uh, policy-making capacity, and a full 67% vote in the negative uh, since they uh, 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 do not have any uh, uh, trust in the uh, European Union and this is a dramatic shift much of which not exclusively can in the German case be explained as a response to uh, the uh, Greek uh, uh, financial crisis uh, and the uh, interpretation that uh, governing political elites have provided of this crisis, namely, they are a spendthrift and uh, lack discipline, and uh, we are supposed to bail them out, and it is a them against we uh, attitude, a short-sighted political uh, logic of uh, of interest, which has not been really counterbalanced uh, by the other. Uh, Uh, considerations, as I have uh, summarized them. Okay, uh, what prevails in Europe is a pattern of negative uh, uh, integration uh, of markets uh, that is designed to increase the option of economic exits, uh, and is designed to debase the governing capacity of national governments and their protectionist inclinations. Uh, the uh, market integration uh, 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 provides options for exit and punishes a protectionist inclination. But the process has not been complemented by some supranational positive integration or the restoration of governing capacity at the European level itself. In fact, the residual elements of governing capacity that remain intact at the level of member states are used by them to obstruct the transfer of governance capacity from the national to the European level. Thus, negative integration both decimates national policymaking capacity and induces national governments to cling to whatever remains of it, rather than sacrificing it for the sake of positive integration. There is a strong sense of, uh, uh, in the national Public sphere of member states, and that applies to both sides of the former Iron Curtain a strong sense of rivalry, jealousy, uh, the pursuit of uh, um, whatever is uh, defined as a national interest, um, although uh, that concept itself is fictitious and that interferes with uh, European policy making uh, capacity. Let me, I have. Uh, Uh, A list here of uh, um, a number of uh, controversies that uh, evolve Uh, between member states, uh, ongoing issues on which by whatever methods, the community method, the open method of uh, coordination or unilateral leadership attempted by some uh, countries, uh, has not been resolved. And uh, these policy issues that uh, evade uh, effective uh, European harmonisation include the following. The concern with inward migration of labour, with all its ramifications in terms of loss of jobs, decline of wages in the rich countries, ethnic conflict, political backlash, and, and so on everything that has to do with migration. My, my Second, the outward flow of investments to EU countries with lower uh, costs of employment and in particular lower taxes, and hence the loss of employment and prosperity at the national uh, level. Third, the fiscal redistribution within the EU and in particular a larger EU, consisting not only in a net transfer of funds from the rich to the less prosperous countries and regions, but also in the relative deprivation that the previous net receivers, namely the um, Mediterranean countries, um, are suffering or feel they are suffering after the accession of new and even poorer, and therefore even more deserving claimants among the new member states. In the east and southeast of Europe. Force the competition in markets for goods and services, which is likely to uh, drive productivity laggards uh, in their respective industries out of business, thereby adding to the persistently high level of unemployment in uh, most uh, current member states. Uh, and the impossibility. Uh, to do something about this uh, problem by protectionist, national protectionist measures, the dis- uh, fifth, the disadvantages imposed upon new member states by their being forced to adopt an entire acquis communautaire as a precondition of their accession. The disadvantages current member countries suffer in terms of the loss of protection as a consequence of European of the. Uh, Uh, of European Court of Justice rulings, and the disadvantages that minorities of one or more countries fear will result from majority decisions within the Council of Ministers, which are contrary to their majoritarian national preferences, all of which gives rise to the fear of Europe becoming a form of foreign rule. And and this uh, sense of being uh, Uh, controlled by the outside is very intense and explicit in the uh, in the uh, new member states uh, the post socialist uh, economies and uh, it does not help although it is a nice point uh, made by a a, a very prominent European politician that they he said in semi-public situation well, they, the Poles, the Hungarians, they have still to learn that there is a difference between Barroso and Brezhnev. Uh, but um, uh, the willingness to appreciate that difference is uh, perhaps limited. And then, of course, there is the financial uh, market crisis of 2008 and its aftermath in the form of uh, uh, a pervasive uh, fiscal crisis that affects the new member states much more seriously than the... Okay. let me try this. Uh, you see here uh, uh, the, the change from 2008 to 2009, the only exception that survived it uh, relatively favorably is Poland. Poland, Polish exceptionalism and another case of uh, this. Whereas you, you see Lithuania, Latvia, uh, Romania, uh, even Slovenia, which otherwise is doing quite well, uh, have uh, massive negative growth rates. And uh, they have also, except for those who are, uh, have adopted the euro or are tied to the euro, they have all these uh, um, very unfavorable uh, uh, ratings for their credit worthiness. And I, I wanted to just highlight the, the seriousness of the of the problem here. Um, this now let me come to uh, to uh, uh, the third construction site, namely the uh, uh, old versus the, the new uh, member states, um, and the dynamics of conflict after. Uh, accession, enlargement, the end of conditionality, however you want to call it. In order to model the unfolding conflicts between the old and new member states, uh, I suggest a sequence of three stages of uh, strategic objectives and driving motivational forces. The three stages which apply to the old and the new member states are first, the formulation of strategic objectives, which took place sometime in the 90s. Second, the awareness of the costs of achieving those objectives, uh, which uh, uh, took place uh, 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 shortly before and since uh, actual accession. And um, third, uh, the satisfaction of disenchantment and frustration with the extent to which the objectives may or may not have been actually reached and at what cost. So this is a timeline uh, where you first uh, make plans, then you see what their realisation costs and how far it proceeds and then thirdly you draw conclusions and you do so on both sides of the EU 15 and the EU 10. Starting with the old Member states, the original motivation for promoting Eastern enlargement was doubtlessly of a primary primarily uh, political nature because the priorities of the EU, as well as NATO, around the mid 90s consisted in helping to consolidate democracy and the rule of law in the CEE, Central Eastern Europe, region through externally through uh, externally imposed conditionality, and thereby to normalize the political development of prospective member states through more or less soft forms of outside control. In contrast, the new member states, having just escaped from a tight and authoritarian form of supranational control, were mostly reluctant and skeptical about joining Europe, uh, adopting a ready-made acquis. But this skepticism and reluctance was consistently trumped by the prospect of post-socialist reconstruction that were based upon the uh, expectation of free access of goods and workers to Western markets, the inflow of foreign direct investment into the Central East European region, and the claims to modernization subsidies that would come from the EU once full membership status was achieved. Once the enlargement uh, process was uh, completed in uh, uh, May 2004, respectively in January 2007, both sides experienced a wave of second thoughts. Among the new member states, These consisted in the realization of failures and an awareness of um, necessary sacrifices concerning the respective subordinate uh, objectives. As to the old member states, their intended political aim of having stable and democratic eastern neighbors was partly offset by the growing economic challenges originating from the CEE region. These challenges came in the form of an inflow of goods and labour, and an outflow of investment and funds allocated from the EU uh, budgets and the uh, uh, strategy of the new member states to introduce uh, very low um, flat-rate taxes, both in income tax and in corporation, corporate taxation, and in value-added tax. I mean as low as 10% in uh, Bulgaria, uh, added to the, um, uh, uh, to the concerns of the old member states. I mean, uh, uh, peak corporate taxes in Denmark are 56% and in Bulgaria 10%, and that makes for differences that the Danes are very unhappy with. Similarly, and in a strictly symmetrical fashion, elites as well as non-elites in the new member states began to perceive the political costs of membership, costs that were framed in terms of losses of national autonomy and the need to comply with EU-wide rules and policies. Thus, both sides began to perceive reasons for asking themselves was the price we had to pay for achieving our primary objectives really worth what we got for it. Finally, and if we read a variety of current indicators that emerge um, in the newly integrated political economy of uh, Europe, rightly, a third phase of regret and frustration or disenchantment has become dominant as the dynamics of the EU 27 or 25 uh, uh, unfold. To put it bluntly, both sides begin to see that what they actually receive for paying the price they paid is less than what they had anticipated and hoped for. From an EU 15 point of view, the second disappointment relates to the fact that neither regime stability nor the liberal democratic consensus, um, nor for that matter a modern and reasonably corruption-free state structure, has uh, emerged in the region, has taken firm roots in all parts of the region, a disillusion that is all the deeper as it comes with the realization that after formal accession has passed, the leverage of conditionality has practically become inoperative. And there are even uh, signs of uh, backsliding, and. I think there's too, perhaps too much, there are experts in the room on this, so I won't say very much, perhaps too much emphasis on the media law in Hungary, but uh, it is read as an example for backsliding. Uh, one also from the region has said, uh, uh, sarcastically, uh, now after the conditionality is over, we can show them who we really are, right? Uh, uh, but uh, maybe that is exaggerated to to uh, use the uh, Hungarian media law. But it is widely done so in the in the Western uh, media. A back case of backsliding. Conversely, the EU t- uh, ten new member states um, have also begun to look back at the deal they were drawn into and to see it um, as a definitely unfavorable one. Not only have they sacrificed too much in terms of national autonomy, this is the official government rhetoric in places such as Poland and also Czech Republic with President Klaus, uh, uh, but also they receive too little in return, that is in terms of the older member states' preparedness to assist them on the road to robust economic Uh, prosperity, rather than keeping them in a position of permanent economic dependency. This is a new experience. Uh, I mean, what is the most uh, uh, automobile intensive economy worldwide? The answer is Slovakia. They produce 100 cars per uh, year, per thousand inhabitants. 100 car per thousand inhabitants. It is, it, is, it is monocultural and if something changes and some people even hope something will change uh, in the uh, mobility regime of uh, Europeans, then they are likely to suffer very badly from, uh, from shifts. They are dependent upon this. I, I quote another example from from Hungary. So, uh, these are dependent economies that are uh, very vulnerable if some major changes occur uh, occur in um, uh, uh, Western Europe. Now, of course, time will show whether and to what extent the second and third stages of this somewhat gloomy model will materialize. Concerning the first stage and the initial patterns of motivation at the beginning of the process that led to eastern enlargement, it is worth noting that the enthusiasm for (coughs) returning to Europe, as the Polish phrase was in the early 90s, both within the candidate countries as well as in the EU 15 member states, was markedly qualified. In 1994, uh, Eurobarometer data show that the least welcome and least favourable assessed West European candidate country, namely Norway, was supported by 75 percent of the EU 12 citizens, running a full 20 percentage points ahead in terms of the support for membership compared to the most welcome, most welcome East European candidate country, which at the time was Hungary, and. Uh, uh, 55 percent of west Europeans so it's a good idea to admit Hungary. So the 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 frame of uh, the mental frame of counting upon the iron uh, curtain and the divide of Europe is still present both in the West and in the East in a very powerful uh, way. And uh, the one side looks at them over there, and the other side looks at them over here. And uh, Uh, it is still a mental frame that informs uh, many uh, policy moves. In other words, the political divide continues to play a significant role. The legacy of the Iron Curtain as well as other historical, cultural, economic, geographic, linguistic and religious differences that exist between the EU 15 and the EU 10, where accession is in fact approved on either side such support for enlargement reflects nothing like European solidarity, but to a large extent, as one author has put it, non-altruistic motives. At the point of actual accession in May 2004, the supporters of enlargement within the EU 15, 15 just barely outnumbered the opponents by 42 to 39%. Among the EU 10, only in Slovenia and Lithuania did an absolute majority of eligible citizens, namely 54 and 58%, support the accession of their countries. There is a strong legacy of state socialism, and not just in uh, the demarcation line, which is somehow mentally present, although physically, of course, no longer. And obvious, um, place to test the hypothesis of perseverance of mental frames, or cultural leg theory of transition, is the part of Germany that used to be, until the formal end of the States through unification in 1990, the demographic and territorial basis of the GDR. Even after 20 years since the end of the German case of state socialism, the normative demarcation line between public and individual responsibilities continues to clearly show up in opinion surveys comparing East Germany and West Germany. As if in a natural experiment, the ex-GDR, the only example of transitions through state merger or the death of a state, as contrasting to the six CE cases of transitions through the separation of states or state births. So the GDR allows us to study the robust afterlife of the normative underpinnings of guiding ideas of states as socialism, the long arm of the past. To summarize just a few findings from recent German surveys, East Germans favor a significantly more substantive definition of democracy. They think that democracy implies providing for jobs. Uh, They think uh, that uh, real democracy provides uh, control over the banks, and um, uh, they think um, that um, uh, democracy as it is practiced in a procedural way is deficient, Um, uh, and so on. the assessment of, and I want to show this, the assessment of uh, market economy and um, its institutions. Uh, we, we have very good data on this from the European Bank of Reconstruction and Development. And if I succeed and... Okay, this is a good example. The economic situation, this is 2006 data. Uh, the economic situation this country is better today than around... Uh, uh, 1989, and the positive answers are uh, uh, in yellow, and uh, CEB is Central Europe and Balkans, and Southeast Europe is SEE. And and you see in both cases these are um, minorities uh, uh, evaluating the situation. What is more interesting is that consistently through these Macro evaluations, you see, uh, that the younger uh, are more favorably disposed in all three uh, regions. You have this uh, definition by uh, by uh, age group, and uh, that the the, the are more favorably uh, uh, disposed. The younger that can be a life cycle uh, phenomenon, or it can be a cohort phenomenon phenomenon and it, it remains to be seen. For, for the time being, we can say that a minority of people are um, uh, satisfied with the economic situation in their country, and that uh, uh, the young people and the uh, more prosperous people are much more unsurprisingly favorably uh, disposed. Um, can, can, I, can I show another one? Okay, this is uh, attitudes to democracy. It's a slightly better uh, uh, profile, but you see the same pattern. uh, The younger, the better, uh, and uh, uh, the richer, uh, uh, the better. And overall, it is uh, uh, less than 60% uh, of uh, uh, favorable uh, uh, judgments. I come to to an end. Uh, Okay, this is overall life satisfaction. Uh, which uh, in Central Europe and the Balkans reaches just about 50 percent, way below in South Eastern Europe and also way below in the uh, former Soviet Union. The same pattern that you see uh, uh, at the at the bottom here. Um, let me skip this. Um, um, rather unsurprisingly and given the weakness of liberal traditions of political culture in the region the, this uh, imbalance uh, provides vast political opportunities for uh, uh, ethno-nationalist populist anti-european uh, mobilization what i mean by this uh, populism is a uh, drama with three persons uh, uh, this is first uh, we, the good, simple people, um, honest, uh, and trustworthy. Them, uh, our enemies, which can be enemies above or enemies from the outside. Two versions uh, of this: that is the political, uh, the political elite, uh, the uh, business elite which leads to a leftist version of populism or uh, uh, minorities and uh, uh, spies uh, uh, and so on, which is uh, rather a a discriminatory, rightist uh, populism. And then the third person in the game is a leader uh, that unites us against them. Uh, And and this game of uh, pointing at enemies, Pointing at the leader uh, and the safe description as simple, trustworthy and good uh, versus evil, corrupt and alien uh, is uh, uh, the basic. And this is much more common, although it's also in in some of uh, West European societies, much more common uh, in uh, uh, the East. Partly also pointing to uh, foreign economic elites uh, uh, who exploit us and take unfair advantage uh, of us Um, uh, and so on. So um, let me uh, uh, conclude by saying um, uh, in the West there are growing doubts as to whether the logic of eastern enlargement, namely the logic of investing through opening capital and labor markets to the region and offering assistance to Uh, out-of-EU funds will actually yield the hoped-for returns in terms of political stability in Central Eastern Europe and Europe-wide cooperation. If anything, these doubts are being heightened, or at least justified, by the perception of symptoms of an anti-liberal, ethnocentric and also anti-European backlash to be observed on the scene of politics in many of the new member states. Uh, My colleague, uh, Alina munju pipidi has uh, nicely summarized this. uh, uh, The indicators of this backlash are uh, the rise of populist groups, political radicalization, weak majorities, uh, factional behavior within unstable parties uh, and governing uh, coalitions, occasional violations of democratic standards, uh, such as the rigging of elections. Apart from tiny Slovenia, which is a, is a, uh, a very exceptional place uh, for reasons that I uh, have a speculation about. Apart from tiny Slovenia, even the best economic growth performers of the region, namely the Czech Republic, Poland and Hungary, have all been backsliding in assessment of the uh, uh, quality of their democracies between 2000 and 2007. Internally unstable and externally um, uncooperative political elites are clearly giving rise to doubts in the old member states. Was enlargement really worth the effort in terms of the economic burdens it involved? <coughs> and also, uh, what is observed with some consternation in uh, in the West is the personal personalistic confrontational style of uh, in which uh, members of political elites address each other with uh, hostilities uh, um, and uh, uh, that applies also to the uh, partisanship in, uh, in the media. So uh, what we can certainly conclude Contrary to what some uh, uh, political and cultural elites uh, try to suggest in the West, the transition period is not yet over. We are involved in a dynamic, the roots of which uh, reach back to the uh, Cold War and to the Iron uh, Curt- Curtain. Transition is not yet over, and finally, uh, um, Accomplished. To the uh, contrary, uh, the present crisis and the challenges resulting, f- uh, challenges resulting from it may reactivate mental uh, patterns and frames as they were thought to be a matter of the past, but are not. Thank you very much. Thank you.